Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to my podcast, Second Chance. A word of warning, this episode contains details of violence that some listeners may find disturbing. Although knife crime remains a serious issue, incidents have fallen here in the UK. That is, to some extent, to do with those who share their experience. Stuart Newton is one of those individuals. He was brought back to life from the brink of death after being stabbed numerous times in an unprovoked knife attack. He wants people to know what it feels like to be stabbed and how it affects a victim. Knife crime is committed by the young and the old. It affects people from black, white and Asian and ethnic communities. It happens to the rich and the poor. It's not a social class issue either. And stories like Stuart's need to be shared in an attempt to prevent others becoming victims or perpetrators. Stuart, thanks so much for coming on onto the podcast. We often talk about survivors. We often talk about people who go through a traumatic experience, who who build a resilience because of that experience. But uh, and we use the term survival quite flippantly these days. I, I I think, but you are a true survivor because of of the nature of the trauma that you went through. And I want to go and get too straight to it because I know it's quite a detailed and I hope it's not too much of a tough story for you to tell but I know that through that experience you are making a difference which we will come on to so you're a survivor mate and and that's because you went through a a, 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 a horrific stabbing incident so where do you want to start telling me about what what happened to you and don't be shy at the details you know yeah, no, not, not at all. So what's happened, Raphael, is I had broken up with my wife. Um, I'd moved over to Wales and I'd broken up with her. i come back. I'm originally from Liverpool. Now I come back after breaking up and I thought, Do you know what? I don't want to go back to Liverpool to my own area. I want to go and find myself, get my head together uh, without everyone asking, you know, how are you, what happens? I wanted to go and find myself again. I went to Southport and I started um, supporting some people around drug and alcohol issues. I've been working with two of them 
for a little while, for a couple of weeks, and been helping them, supporting them. And then this one... So is that so, because you yourself had drug and alcohol issues? No, not at all. I didn't have drug and alcohol issues uh, myself, but I've always been quite an empathetic person and quite supportive person and wanted to help others. Um, through past traumas, again, in my life, you know, I'd lost friends at an early age through horrific accidents, really. So this was just a catalogue um, of traumas that, you know, this this last one, really. Um, so I wanted to help. I knew that, obviously, people who go into addiction and things like that, it's a form of self-harm. And there's a root cause behind it. So I always want to find that root cause and try and help people with that root cause. So instead of dealing with, say, an addiction or something, which is an effect of a cause, Rather than dealing with that, deal with the person and the root cause behind it. So I was being there as a support to them. Now, this one person, the person who's done what he's done to me, who stabbed me, I met him about a week before the incident. Now, he got thrown out of the supported residence where he was living for attacking one of the other residents. Now, I was taken to the residence to a free music festival in Southport, uh, which was July the 13th of 2019. It was a Saturday, a sunny day. This other gentleman who's done this, I call him a gentleman, but, you know, the, the person who's done what he's done to me, Raphael, he had a fight with his partner that morning, got kicked out, assaulted her, and then he's turned up at the event because he was quite friendly with um, Gary and Michelle, who were the other two residents. Um, so I've agreed that he can be in our company, not knowing that he had attacked his partner that morning, not knowing that he's carrying a knife um, in a sheath, it's a kitchen knife in his sheath, in his sock. So they're having a little drink, um, like a lot of people are, you know, enjoying the music. I'm regulating, because you can't just stop someone drinking if they've got, you know, the alcohol dependence, you've got to, it's got to be regulated. So I'm just keeping an eye on them, making sure they're out of trouble. Well, within an hour, this Colin, who's done what he's done to me, has, he started fighting with a member of the public. So it's been brought to my attention. I've run over, broke the two of them up. The police have come along. Because no one in the crowd would say who started it, because it was mainly shoving and pushing, it was a bit of this and that, because it was a nice sunny day and because he was within my company, uh, the police said, right, we'll move this fella up to the other end of the pier. We'll keep him here. If you go up that end and look for trouble, then obviously he's going to get lifted and vice versa. So I said, yeah, that's fine. We just want to enjoy the music. Apologies. I don't know what happened, but I'll keep an eye on it. So we're enjoying the music. I'm talking to a fair people in the crowd who were there with the children. I'm talking toddlers, uh, Raphael, you know, with grandparents, with parents. It's an outdoor thing on Southport Promenade. Now, it was Christian. It was a Christian music event. Um, playing normal music, but so it was quite laid back. I, next thing, yeah, I'm hearing screaming coming from across the road, and he's there abusing a wedding party outside a hotel while they're taking the wedding pictures. So I've had to go over again and have words with him. Um, he's apologised. He's gone back. I've said, look, this is your last chance, mate. At the end of the day, it's a Saturday. I'm not, you know, I don't have to. You don't have to be in our care. You know, you're the grown man. So you can go and do whatever you want to do. It's up to you. But if you want to be in our company, behave, because children are here. And you're setting a bad example. He apologised. They was roughly um, from working things out. So maybe 35, 40 minutes later. So I'm talking to this older couple. He comes up behind me, puts his arms around me, hugs me. And I go, oh, look, and I go, all right, mate, just, you know, and he was like, apologies. I'm sorry for missing, you know, for doing what I've done. And I am behaving out of order. He goes, do you forgive me? Just just looking at you, you you look like quite a big guy. You look like 
you you look after yourself, you know, whether it's yeah. pumping iron or you eat a little bit too much McDonald's, I yeah. don't know, but you look... Yeah, both, yeah, both. thanks very much. <laughs> Just paint the picture of the guy we're talking about, because it sounds to me like he's had this incident back at his flat with his girlfriend, he's then got into a fight at this festival and then he's abused other people you know what, what sort of guy are we talking about are we talk, talking about a guy that's under the influence of, of alcohol and drugs are we just talking yes, about- he wasn't he wasn't under the influence of drugs he's been tested that's all come out in court so i wouldn't have known if he had been doing anything you know on the slide i wouldn't have known if he's popped a pill or something like that however it's come out in court toxicology report it was just drink he wasn't even that intoxicated, in all fairness. He really wasn't, because I was monitoring what he was drinking. But th- when we say about this guy, I mean, he was 44 years of age. He's not a young lad. You know, he- he's a grown man who's had, obviously, a catalogue of problems through his life uh, that haven't been dealt with and supported in the correct way, because it's not normal behaviour, is it, to do what he's done. So, as I said, he's come up behind me and asked for forgiveness. And I've said, yeah, it's fine. Just enjoy the day. Makes a nice sunny day. No, no harm, no foul. And he went, brilliant. So you forgive me, of course. And he went, I, I just heard you won't forgive this. And I felt two taps here, Raphael. I don't know if you can see that there. You're showing me the scars behind your ear. Yeah, I can see a scar there, a lined scar. So that's twice he's gone in there. And it's the outer jugular. Now, I didn't know you have an inner and outer. Now, I've always heard, if you get stabbed in the jugular, God God bless you if you survive that. But the outer jugular still, it just started. It was everywhere. You know, I, I just heard the scream, I scream from, the, you know, the couple in front of me. And I was like, what? Put my hand up. And it was like um, Michael Jackson's glove. You know, to be worn, it was just, rather than red, it was just covered black all the time. I was like, what? Like, Dan, I'm like, Dan, a bit confused looking around for him. And he's not there. So I'm paying attention. This old woman's like getting quite flustered and upset. So I'm trying to calm her down. And I'm the one who's, you know, been stabbed. And then he snuck around and he's come up behind me again. He's stabbed me another 10 times. Now, um, he's run off at that point, Raphael. He's just, you know, he's done a leg. At that point, there's just the crowds are screaming. There's blood everywhere. I'm still upright walking around. I haven't recognised or realised the level of my injuries. I didn't realise all the other injuries around me. So I've gone and I've sat down on a bench and I've gone like that again. And I'm like, oh. Then luckily for me, there was a first aider nearby because it was a music festival. He's come running over and starts packing my neck, at which point someone in the crowd's come walking out and pointed, you know, all at my side and went, so they've lifted up my top. And at this point, both lungs had collapsed. He'd gone through both lungs, so they collapsed. He had gone through my heart, but just the ventricles, luckily. It was millimetres from maximum you know, the, the part itself. It was the ventricles he nipped. He had gone through my spleen twice and that had ruptured. So I was internally bleeding. Um, I bled out. I literally lost all my body weight in blood within four or five minutes. The ambulance come. I got up, stood up. I don't know how I got up. But I, as I say, adrenaline, a bit of shock. I got up, walked into the ambulance. Um, they couldn't move me straight away. Because it was that high risk, because I was dead. I was literally, I was dead, you know, dead in the ambulance. So they had to give me eight blood transfusions in the ambulance, stabilise both lungs before they could blue light me to, uh, from Southport to Entry Trauma Hospital. I got to the hospital. Again, I got out and walked into the hospital, <laughs> walked in, they've got all my clothes off me. I'm walking through the hospital in my boxer shorts into this trauma unit. And there's doctors there, there's trauma surgeons, there's nurses. And there was police, and I was a bit confused at this point why there was police in this trauma room because it was emergency surgery, but I later transpired that the police had been sent ahead of the ambulance 
to meet me at the hospital to take forensic straight away off my dead body because they were expecting me to be dead on arrival. So there's me walking into this trauma room, blood spurting everywhere, you know, wounds have been packed as much as they could, but I'm walking there dead on my feet, refusing treatments. Reason being, I really didn't think it was that bad. I really didn't. Um, I thought, well, the, well, I'm sorry. Well, I was going to ask if the, because I can see the scar at the back of your neck and that doesn't look superficial. Were the 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 stab wounds in your neck and in the rest of your body, you mentioned 10, ten times, were, were they superficial? I mean, how, I mean, I'm sure you'll share with me uh, as you carry on telling your story what, what was required from, from the medics. But, you know, to, to talk about still being standing, still standing and still being able to walk into the hospital yourself, I have to ask the question, how how serious were the injuries at the at the time? And you talk about not even feeling the penetration of the knife. Tell me a bit about that. Well, these were all to the hilt. Um, they weren't slashes. They were all physical stab wounds right to the hilt of the blade. Um, the blade being, what was it, seven-inch blade. And this was to the hilt. So even in the neck, if you think of that, it's hard to understand when I was in court and he said, a knife twice to the hilt seven inches, and you think, well, where does that go? You know, where does that go in physically to your neck? And, you know, you look at your face and you think, well, it's, I've got a bit of a fat face, but it's not that wide. But, yeah, every single one to the hilt, Raphael. Now, not one of these stitches um, required a normal butterfly. Every single stitch, I was stapled up. So after this, after after I've come out of hospital, obviously I had staples everywhere. But it was quickly identified. Can I just, just before you go on, Stuart, about what happened at the hospital, sorry to interrupt you, I'm just trying to visualise this scene. So he's he's hugged you, he's pushed the knife into your neck to the hill twice, and then, you know, you've discovered that with the blood on your hand uh, and people are becoming hysterical. And then he circles back and, and goes at you again. What were you doing at this time? Because I'm sure if someone has stabbed you two times and then they're coming in a third, a fourth, a fifth time, and you talk about ten stabbings, were you able to defend yourself? Were you fighting him off? Did anybody else help fight him off? No, I think it's all, as much as that sounds like because he circles round and that gives you a bit of time, I think because of what he had done and then the older couple in front of me and they're screaming, that brought attention from other people around and then other people started screaming. So I'm like that. I was trying to pacify and calm others down because there's children there. I was trying to calm others, which I know sounds unusual when, you know, you've been stabbed yourself. But, I mean, if you ask me, that's just the way I seem to react to things. I want to make others feel better about the situation. And to me, I actually believe that it was more traumatic for the people who watched than it was for me. They're actually visually seeing what's happening to me. I'm not, you know, I'm internalising it if you know what I mean, because I was in shock, adrenaline. As I said, I didn't realise the level of my injuries, whereas a lot of people did, you know. Did you not feel the, the the pain of the knife penetrating your skin? I didn't, didn't, really didn't. A lot of people have asked Is me that, that. And do you think that's down to your, your physical build or because the adrenaline, as you say? Do you know, Raphael, I think it's a mixture of, you see people who walk on hot coals, Okay, so if your mind is somewhere else, now if you get into an altercation with someone and you see the knife coming at you, you will tense, your body will tense. Your mind is telling you that you've been stabbed. My mind at this point, because it come up from behind me, I, I wasn't aware my mind was somewhere else I was talking. I physically, you know, you'd still expect maybe to feel it, but I think it is 
you know, I've got to put it down to either the adrenaline, the shock, or the fact that your mind is in an altered state. It's somewhere else. You're not physically, you're not looking at what's going on yourself, if that makes sense. It does make sense. And it's really interesting because I, 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 I can't imagine it. And I suppose many, many of my listeners can't either, if not all of them. But at the point that he was stabbing you, despite the fact that you weren't able to, to feel what was going on because you were in this state of mind, it was, uh, you say, 10, 10, a number of stabs. Were, were you not able to confront him, fight him off? I mean, what happened in that situation? Yes, yeah, so there's a lot of people, obviously, round the bar. And there's, I think there was people trying to tug him away at the time. So I'm sort of like that, you know, as someone was like that, you know, and it was, it's not a frenzied as in it was all down one side. He's leant around and gone through me spleen. So I'm through me heart, you know, it gone for me heart. So he had gone for every, but everywhere conceivable in your upper body that you can think of, which could end a life. I mean, there's no safe, first, first and foremost, there's no safe place to be stabbed. You can nick, nick a little artery. Or anywhere, and you, you can die. However, the main ones, your jugglers and, you know, any of your vital organs, you're very, very lucky if you survive. That's why I'm blessed. Obviously, that day I really was blessed to have survived. I'm glad it was me that day, though, Raphael. I really am, because so many people have asked me this question. They've said, well, I bet you wish you hadn't broke up that fight now, earlier on, that he you know, that he started with a member of the public. I'm like, well, why did you say that? Because if I hadn't broke that fight up, Imagine if you pulled that knife out and killed that person. See, I was strong enough to have survived that, whether it was, you know, mental or physical. Why question it? Fact is, I, I survived it. I'm here. Someone else probably, you know, more than likely wouldn't have survived that. So in that respect, I'm ill for the rest of my life, but I've saved a life already. So for me, that's that it's worth. it was worth going through, as far as I'm concerned, anyway. That, that's a powerful testimony. You arrived at the hospital, which is where your injuries were going to be treated. What 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 happened at the hospital? Yes, so at first, as I say, I was trying to. There was that many people, just the nurses, and then shock, and there was tears in some of the nurses' eyes because I wasn't recognising how serious it was, and they were trying to stress to me, and the trauma says, and trying to stress how serious this is. And I said, look, there's loads of people who need to be treated. Please go and see them. Honestly, it, it's not as bad as you think. And then he got quite upset with me then because there was nurses getting visibly upset because I was basically going to have to sign a piece piece of paper or something, you know, to say I'm not taken. If you come into hospital, I believe, if you're unconscious or something like that, you're going to get treated. But if you're physically saying, look, I don't want treatment, what can they do? They can't force treatment upon you. So they said, we're going to phone you next to Kim then. Now, the next to Kim was my wife, and I thought, but we were separated. So I thought, well, I don't want to speak. I don't want to hear no one. So they said, well, whatever, what other number have you got? I didn't have my mobile. That had got lost, you know, during transit, during what had happened. And off the top of your head, how many numbers do you know? Because you look at your phone, your number, uh, someone's number is the name. Every time you phone someone, it's the name. So I didn't know. So I was like, gosh, I don't know any numbers. I've got my mum, my mum's home phone number. It's where I live, does it get the same number? So I'll be phoned there anyway. Quickly spoke to my mum. You know, said your son's been stabbed, he's in hospital, that's all I had. Passed me the phone and she went, stop being a martyr, you're about to die, take that treatment now. And I went, right, okay, put the phone down, realised it was serious. I said, serious, good and it, yeah, good old mum, yeah. It was the panic in her voice and it was like, hallelujah, the mother's safety there. Which she did because otherwise I am quite stubborn in that respect because I really didn't believe it was that serious. Were you drunk at the time Had you had a few drinks? No, no, drink? I haven't been drinking. I haven't been drinking. As I say, it was just shock, 
shock adrenaline. and it's not something it's the last thing you expect to happen to you isn't it in any circumstance let alone when you're at a music festival let alone when you're trying to support people and help them for that to turn against you it's well it's unthinkable you know it's unthinkable in any normal circumstance but in that circumstance i'd actually say yeah maybe a bit more when you're trying to help someone so yeah i, I agreed and they threw me straight on and that was it then like 12 hours of surgery repairs to me to my neck, obviously, staples all over there, repairs to my heart, my lungs, my stomach, my back, my diaphragm, and they had to open me up from just below the navel right the way up to here and remove my spleen. And that was to you know, save my life, really, to remove the spleen because it had ruptured, so that's pumping poison, basically, blood into your body. So I was internally dying. I only had minutes, literally minutes, I shouldn't have been alive as it was from what they were saying. You know, they were shocked, but I had minutes left. But I survived surgery, obviously, which was, you know, amazing again. Even more amazing is I left the hospital five days later after this had happened. Once all the once the catheter was out, once all the drains were out, even though I couldn't move because, of, you know, I was I was stapled everywhere, Raphael. You got to understand the level of the injuries. I couldn't eat for about five weeks, even though I was so hungry. Every day, I was so hungry. I can remember it now because I was imagining, you know, say you're in jail and you're imagining food on the outside, like a burger or this or that. That's what I can put it down to is this. For five weeks, I was like just picturing sumais. Sumais are one of my favourite foods, you know. I was thinking, <laughs> that's all I want. I'd have a bite of toast and I'd be keeled over in agony, you know, because of all the internal repairs inside, which I still feel. I'd still get days where, especially this one right down the front, I really suffer with pain and it's still quite a lot. But yeah, I wanted to get home uh, and thought I can heal better at home. Plus, as a survivor, I wanted to put my story out there as a survivor on social media and be raw and graphic and show the injuries. Because when you hear of horrific life attacks, sadly, it's, it's right. There's so many. It's a daily occurrence now. It's normally non-survival. Um, it's very rare whether it's a survivor, especially with this level of injuries or someone who's going to come up and start speaking about it straight away and or show their injuries. So that's what it did. I got out, put my story on social media and it, it did. It had the effect that I wanted to. It went viral. Um, but before before you before you went down that route, you had to recover from from your injuries. That's the first thing. Your your mum, who who was you, you know that one of the heroes here, who got you to go through what you needed to go through in order to survive, and then sort of rebuilding. I, I suspect maybe a little bit of your confidence um, to go back out there and not fear in the way that maybe what had happened to you had, had created, even if it was a deep inner feeling. But recovering from your injuries uh, and the the people that loved you around you. I mean, how did they cope with what had happened to you? And then before you talk about, you know, the impact you had in sort of sharing your story, I want to talk about what happened to the individual who inflicted these these horrific injuries on you. So talk me through some of that, Stuart, please. Yeah, absolutely. So obviously, you know, as it said, my mum got that phone call, didn't she? And it was mother that said, obviously, stop being a martyr, you know, get 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 the treatment. So they've obviously rushed. You know, my mum, my father, my father's um, got cancer and he's had a severe stroke. So for him, it was even more so panicky. You know, it was, it, it, it obviously hit him fearful a lot more. Not to, not to say that or take away from anyone else. You know, but so there was me, mother, me father and me little brother, actually. Um, he flew up the hospital as well. Now, if you paint the picture for them, that's why I've said I feel it was more traumatic for those 
from the outside looking in rather than from me um, because I didn't know what was going on. And then I'm obviously, I'm in theatre, I'm unconscious, you know, getting treatments. These are the people who are having to sit there and wait. Now, they've all they know is your son's been stabbed. It's it's serious. It's lucky he's alive, reaching the hospital. Now he's in theatre. So they're having to sit in the hospital waiting room, family room for like 12 hours, expecting the worst, expecting for those 12 hours for someone to come out and go, with lot, you know, your son's gone. And that's what obviously they were expecting. But I made it, you know, through it. So that was horrific for them. But one of the first things my mum said to me, Raphael, was one of the first questions you've asked. When she seen it come through, she went, does it hurt getting stabbed? Just <laughs> the first thing. Because one of the first things people think is a paper cut. You get a paper cut and it's like, oh. Now, and it does, doesn't it? It does. You get a little paper cut. You feel it. But sometimes, if you, I'll take you back to me saying, if your mind's not registering it, sometimes you can be doing something and accidentally cut yourself on something. Even gardening. Say you're gardening. You've got you know, you're some blisters off it or something at the time. You're not noticing. And later on, though, you notice. You know, when you actually visually see it. Absolutely. I mean, we all experience that. I, I, I've got a little cut on my wrist here, actually. I don't know where or how I did it. Whereas I, I sliced my thumb the other day on, on, a, on a knife when I was cooking and I almost cried like a baby. So you're absolutely right. And that's because I was conscious of that one, but not of the one where I've scraped my wrist. It's so interesting and so insightful, actually. But I don't want to dwell on it because it's it's also horrible you know a, a penetration of your skin that causes blood especially when it's from an outside force that that you're not welcoming like the kitchen knife that you're using to cook or some other twig or or, or fawn on a on a bush uh, it's so interesting that you talk about how how traumatic it was for your your family whilst you were in effect on, on your deathbed but you did survive and you did have to go home with, with all the injuries uh, and how has that impacted your you, you mentioned a moment ago that, you know, you're still very ill. And this was only two years ago, two, two years ago. Um, how have your injuries um, recovered since since the incident? So I'm not going to lie, first and foremost, you know, when I, I say about the pain side of it, when I woke up in hospital, Raphael, the next day after the surgery, oh, my God, the pain was horrendous. Don't get me wrong. You know, it's not like I don't feel pain. I was in agony. You know, and I've got a morphine drip in me. They're giving me ketamine liquid. I mean, the blood Chevy couple of, you know, 20 minutes or something. The attention that I got in hospital was unbelievable. You know, they got me through as well. So don't get me wrong. I was on a lot of drugs in hospital to, to ease the pain. But, yeah, I couldn't. They wouldn't release me to my home address because I had moved. Obviously, I left my wife and I had moved into my own place in Southport because I was on my own. They wouldn't I needed I needed support. I needed support to get in and out of bed. I needed support to get um, if I was going to go up and downstairs, but I never went downstairs for quite some time. I needed help being washed again, you know, which is good at your age and having to go home to your parents' address and have to have how old was you at the time, Stuart? Um do we have to do we have to go there? <laughs> I was 40. But you look young. You look very young now. All right. you, 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 now, now you're just grooming me to give, me, give the age out. I was 40. I was 40. <laughs> 40 at the time. I'm 42 now. But to go home, you know, Rafi, at, at any age, really, you know, I have to get that support and care. But, I mean, my mum's fantastic. Uh, my whole family are, you know, the support. I've had such supportive friends. You know, I've got a lot of support from around the country and I've got new friends at Wayne College. It's been fantastic. Um, and I wouldn't have recovered. I wouldn't have recovered as well as I did, especially mentally, without that support. But from that, from my bed at home, 
in my mum and dad's. I straight away have started going to work on making a difference. I organised a big charity event in Liverpool for a campaign group in Liverpool called the No More Knife Campaign. Um, I had Everton and Liverpool Football Club um, donating things. I used to play for Everton um, for the age of nine, you know, Everton youth team, until I was like 14, 15. So they got behind me, gave me things, um, because obviously they've given me things for an auction. Liverpool's on the same. Then I was on the phone to hotels around the city. They were giving me overnight stays. I can't imagine the Liverpool and the Evertonians coming together to buy this stuff, but, you know, that's, that's all great. Brilliant. Yeah, I mean, the whole city got behind this about, and uh, behind the story and donated things, you know, businesses donating things for an auction. So we set up this event in this uh, in a club in Magull. Uh, we were given that to us for free to use and we got people down. It was, it was brilliant. Uh, it really was. We had a big auction. And what was it? What, what was the message you were trying to? I mean, obviously, you've been stabbed. You're a victim. You're recovering from your, your injuries. You know, you've been reduced to, you know, that little boy that needed caring for uh, as a grown man. But you kind of embraced that. Two questions. Your mental state at this time. I mean, you obviously, rather than dwell on your suffering, decided that you were going to use that suffering immediately to, to engage with people who who what? What, what what was it that you, you were trying to get out there immediately? Okay, so it was awareness of it because at the time, I feel, I'll be honest, I, I didn't know, unless things land on your own doorstep, how often do we really see the full picture? We don't, we live through tainted glasses a lot of the time, we're very much, and it's sad and it's not a, a detriment to anyone, uh, but a lot of us have tunnel vision in certain respects. We have an eye on our own goal, our own life, and we're going that way. When something like this happens to you, you become peripheral very much so, and you see a lot more, and the world opens up in the pictures. And that's what I see in a world of hurt and pain through knife crime and bereaved families. Now, I heard of this group within Liverpool, the No More Knife campaign, and you know what they were trying to do, get a message out and try and obviously bring a stop to you know the problem that we the society creates. So I couldn't do that much myself from my own bed while I was recovering. So I had a phone, I had a voice, I had a message, you know, I had a story which could bring people together and create something. So that's what I done and I raised money for this campaign and it was from that other campaign groups around the country started following me and said your story is combat, you know, bringing groups together. We're wanting to do a national event, which was uh, it ended up being something called Your City Says No. I'm not too sure of Natalie when you spoke to whether she mentioned that, but it was a um, so it was like 45 towns and cities up and down the country. Uh, 12th of October 2019, that was so it was not long after what has happened to me. Yeah, all these towns and cities done a little march, little event in their own city against knife crime. So the, the ladies, uh, two of the ladies, Yemi and Nicole, who were starting that, got in touch with me to see if I'll be the Northwest lead on that sort of what did. So these are two things I started from my bed. But this helped me recover because obviously my mind is focused elsewhere on helping others. And while you're doing that, it's taken away from what I was going through, which was helping me recover. But a lot of people have said, I mean, how, how do you get into that mindset? You, you're recovering from something. And as you say, I am not well for the rest of my life now. I mean, I've got no spleen. And your spleen is basically, it's your immune system. So it's what first fights it. So as you can understand, I'm in the high-risk category. In fact, after this interview, I've got to go and have my second job. 
every injection you have, you know, when you're a child, from your MMR, your measles, rubs, you know, your measles, mumps, rubella, all through your teeth, all the different jabs that you have, I've had to have over again. And I'll continue have to have jabs for the rest of my life. I'm on antibiotics every day for the rest of my life, which is slow release, but like I've got a slow release penicillin, two in the morning, two in the evening. And that's just to give me a fighting chance, you know, if I do get infection. But I am susceptible, you know, really susceptible to bad infections and ultimately, you know, secondary infections. And because both lungs collapsed as well, both lungs are very weak, which it's difficult for me because this COVID, I'm at high risk because I've got no immune system. Yet I can't wear, I'm, a, I'm exempt from wearing a mask because my lungs are classed as COPD. So it's like if I catch it, it goes to my lungs. I've got no chance. So it's a bit like. Do, do you wear a mask just, just to protect yourself anyway? Or, or is that difficult? If I, walk, I can't walk with a mask on. I do get out of breath now quite easy. Um, so I can't physically walk with one on. If I'm asked to be in an enclosed place with someone, then yeah, I'll put a covering on. Absolutely, I'll do that. I'll have to put a covering on now to go and get my jab anyway. You won't let you in without one, so. How do you cope with that, Stuart? I'm just thinking you were a 40-year-old man going about your life. You know, you know, you didn't have any of these issues or problems or need for medication. I don't know what else is going on in your life as to whether you needed an aspirin every now and again or a paracetamol. How do you cope with that that mentally? Because it's only been two years, you know, and I and and given what you've done since what has happened to you, as as distracted you from from actually reflecting on on the trauma that you've gone through, does it not worry you or people around you that you've not really, or have you? I'm asking the question. You've not really um, taken the time to overcome. The, the mental challenges that this is, is inflicted on you? Yeah, I mean, I can understand. I've been asked that. Yeah, I mean, that's a, absolutely reasonable. So many people have said right from the start and from the work that I've done since they've gone, slow down, take time for yourself because this may hit you, you know, and you can get on well and this and that. I said, well, fact is, what's the point in me dwelling on a situation? It's happened. It's gone. And that's what people said, you know, how can you just do straight away, come out of hospital, do this and move on and try and help others? Well, you can't always happen. Sorry, I always say you can't always determine what happens to you in life, but you can determine how you react. So I, I think it's a slap in the face to anyone who has been stabbed and has lost their life or any family who's bereaved for me to sit there and dwell and feel upset for myself. At the end of the day, I shouldn't have survived, but I have. So what's a little illness? If I've got to take some tablets some days, if I've got to be extra careful, if I get sick from time to time, so be it. You know, I lived I lived through it. I shouldn't have lived through it. So it's happened. The fact is, there's no point in dwelling on something that I can't change. Is that all I can do is change that um, by turning it, that negative, what could be, you know, presumed as a negative, which... Yeah, it could be, but I don't think it is. I think it's a positive because it's allowed me to help others and put me into a situation to be able to help others. So I'm quite happy with how things have gone in all fairness. That's not to say I don't like the scar and I don't like not being well, but if there's a purpose behind it, then who am I to say any difference? You know, it's what was meant to be. Well, well, well done, you, and, and and I'm sure a lot of what you're doing is is making a difference, and I'm sure you can share a story at all where 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 that is happening. The individual that stabbed you, what what happened to him? Yeah, he was he was caught. 
pretty much straight away because he didn't leave the entire area. I only found that I was obviously watching, you know, a court and what have you. And he was sat on a hill nearby watching me dying on the bench, watching and drinking, drinking a bottle of cider and watching. Um, But he was caught very quickly, um, obviously put on remand. Um, He was charged with attempted murder, carrying a blazer's article in a public place and a lesser charge, a lower indictment of wounding with intent. He asked for the wounds and with intent. Apparently, he said, I'll go guilty on the wounds and with intent, but not on attempted murder. And the, the CPS refused and said, no, it's going to court. He got away with the attempted murder. The jury found him not guilty of attempted murder based on... I find, I find it silly. I, I, you know, I do, but it's, 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 you know, it's, it's everyone's entitled to their decision, aren't they? But... You can't quite determine beyond reasonable doubt what is in someone's mind while intoxicated. And because there was no previous pre-motive to it, it's put down to as it's a flash in the pan moment as shots. But he's come out with a blade, hasn't he? So he's come out with intent there. But was it murderous? Was it pre-planned against me? Apparently not. So he, he got the lesser, he got sentenced to the lesser charge of the wounded with intent in he received 15 years, 11 uh, on extended. So he's got to serve 11 years custody and then go for parole. And then it'll be, you know, a couple of years on license. And do you think, I, I, I know you don't think it's fair that he, or, or do you? I mean, do you think justice was served? Do you think you got the justice that, that you deserved as a victim of this knife crime? What is the justice? The justice, it's difficult to say what that he should be locked away for the rest of his life. That'll be a bit... It'd be two-faced of me, really, and contradictory to say that, because I've survived, I've got my second chance at life. I shouldn't have survived that, but I have got that chance. I'm trying to give others a second chance, take them away from the path that he's been led down. I do understand that it is not normal behaviour. It's not not normal human behaviour to take a knife out and do that. There's a causal issue behind it, so... Uh, that's that's part of the reason, really. It, it's it's spared me on to help others and deal with causal issues, root causes that maybe he's been let down in his life. You know, he hasn't. He's had issues. I don't know what's happened to him in his life, but surely so, there is things have happened that have led him to the drink, which has led to this behaviour. So I just hope it's long enough for him inside. I'm, I'm glad he's obviously gone to prison because he was a danger to the public. So I just hope it's long enough for him to deal with his issues and get them supported and get help, come out and lead a productive life, because who knows, he could come out and do the sort of way to stop other youths following his path and taking that. If he could do that and change that into that, fantastic. But time will tell on that one. I just have to focus ahead on me and my life and helping others myself and my, you know, what I've been through. I, I can see why you 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 would make a, a powerful um, a speaker at events where people are trying to talk about issues like this, it, it, whether it's knife crime, rehabilitation, you know, forgiveness, whatever it is, because you are such a positive person. You know, as I'm listening to you, I can see the positivity and you see the positivity from everything you said out of some really dark, dark moments. Did you find out at the trial why he did what he did? Because the jury found him not guilty of the attempted murder on the basis that he was intoxicated and that it was a a freak moment where even though he had the intention of doing something with that knife, whatever that is, they didn't accept that it, it was to harm you in any way. But did you find out why in that moment when all you'd done up until that point is kind of 
appease his aggression towards other people. You know, he'd been aggressive that day. Was it that he'd taken offence that you were able to intervene and you were a good person trying to do the right thing in, in both the situations where he'd become confrontational? So did you find out whether those were the motives for him doing what he did or could you have been anyone in that park that day? Could have been anyone. It was a catalogue of things from him losing his place in the residence where he was the week before. He had been living rough on the, you know, rough for a couple of days and then he had gone into his, you know, stayed with his partner. She had kicked him out. He had, you know, obviously had the argument with her. He's come out, he's had a drink. All that has stayed. That's what I mean about a catalogue of causal issues to an event. There's always a lead up to that final point, isn't there? So it doesn't just happen. Sometimes, you know, you do find that some things that do just happen. But, I mean, in this instance, no, it was a, a series of things. And then this person who he's having the argument with maybe had belittled him by pulling them apart. You know, maybe that fellow was having the best with him. I don't really know. I, I, I could have been anyone that, that day, which is why I've said I'm so glad it was me in that respect and not someone else. Because, you know, it could have been a lot worse. You know, not just for him himself and his life, but, you know, someone could have lost their life, someone could have lost their baby, anything, so. Did he apologise? Did, did, has any message? No, no, he didn't. No, he's no, not no. that kind of mindset. He's like. No, he's not there yet, Reese. He's not there yet. How challenging is it in, in the line of work you do today to convince uh, uh, people that, that, that carrying knives, using knives, cause the kind of devastation that, that you're experiencing and, and are having to live through? I mean, you know, those who have lost loved ones are traumatised by the fact that they're no longer there. But what's happened to you is just as devastating in that you've got to live with these injuries and, and, and the knowledge of going through what you went through, as have the people around you. And I, I do understand your positivity that at least you're alive and those people have lost loved ones. Um, but the question is, how challenging is it to do the work that you're trying to do today, which is to reduce knife crime? I'm not going to lie, it's extremely challenging. There's people all over the country, obviously, very vested in it and trying to make a difference. Me personally, when I go and I talk to people, I find it actually, it's very therapeutic to me. The more you talk about it anyway, the more it's, you internalise it and you, you deal with it yourself anyway. It's when often when you don't speak about your problems, when you bottle them up, that they manifest and they can obviously come out in different ways different areas which is a lot of what is behind knife crime you know a lot of people won't realize that the seven out of ten youths who are in the youth justice system come from a domestic violence background now domestic violence in homes towards children can create a lack of empathy within children and it's hard to explain this to some people they don't realize they go well how does that make them carry a knife well there's a big difference between shame and guilt okay so if you're ashamed that maybe you couldn't protect your mother, you're ashamed that this something's happened. And it doesn't have to just be a domestic violence. It could be child sexual abuse. Shame comes with that. Shame you couldn't protect yourself. That bears out in frustration, in anger with shame, whereas guilt is something completely different. If you guilt, feel guilt about something and that you haven't been able to help someone else, then you feel guilty sometimes rather than if you were in a position where you could Okay, if you were strong enough to help someone and you couldn't, you may feel guilty. If you're weak and you can't, not so much weak, but if you would know that you couldn't help someone, then that's shame, you know, and you want to be stronger, protect yourself. So 
that shame manifests itself, unfortunately, in frustration, in anger, lack of empathy towards others. Um, but when you lose value for those things, when you lose value for your own self-worth, how the hell are you going to value anyone else's life? And this is what the problem and this is what's perpetuating now in amongst a lot of children. And what you find within the school system is the school system isn't nurturing children as it used to be. The school system is like a business now. It's Ofsted driven. I could go on all day with you about ADHD, neurodiversity, how these kids aren't being supported correctly in school. Um, and these are a lot of targets for county lines. These type of children, they become more vulnerable because they get off-rolled. They get, you know, put into pupil referral units. They're waiting to be put into special schools. And the prime the prime targets for these um, county line groups to groom and say, well, we understand you. We'll support you. We'll put money in your pocket. We'll be your family. And this is how these things happen. And then next in, they're carrying a knife and they're forced to do that a lot of the time. You know, social media is not helping them either. And and what's also interesting, and and you're a victim of this, is that I I don't know. I mean, the person that you talked about who who, who inflicted the injuries on you was a 44-year-old man. When I spoke to my last guest, who who was also a victim of knife crime, it was a a, a partner who she loved very much, Natalie. She she didn't expect what happened to her. So it's, it's, it's often reported that these incidents are committed by you know, gang members, you know, especially those in the black community. But that's not necessarily true because your testimony that this individual, I don't know if he was black or white or of another nationality, but neither was was, was Natalie's. It was an, uh, an incident. And these incidents happen all the time, especially in domestic settings, I, I, I suspect. How do you reach the ordinary, I say the ordinary man and woman, but those that are not caught up in criminality, for example, where carrying a knife, as you've just described, because you're part of the county lines, which is a drug running kind of operation, if you like, um, and it happens within certain communities, and it's been normalised to some extent to carry a knife in the same way you would your mobile phone these days. Not all the kids luckily use those knives, but they may well be prepared because of the traumas that they've experienced or of this lack of empathy that you, you've just talked about. How do you find the space it, 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 now that you work in this space, Stuart, where you're trying to reach people who you just don't know whether they're going to pick up a knife and use a knife because they don't even know whether they're going to pick up a knife and use a knife. But inevitably, they do in some instances where where it causes death or, or severe damage. That's the problem, isn't it? Because there is no there's no bias to it. There is no bias. There's no prejudice to like. Uh, it's not a, it's not a white issue. It's not a poor issue. It's not a black issue. It's not a rich issue. It's not a white collar, blue collar. It's it's an everyone issue. It's our whole civilization is being affected by it. So how do you point someone out in the streets and go, he could be carrying a knife or he will use a knife? You can't. It's like seeing someone go, he's going to cast a flu. You know what I mean? You can't. That's the problem. So it's early intervention. You've got to start. There's different ways to approach it because you can deal with people who are all act- already active in gangs and they'll have to be treated and dealt with. You know, you'll have to engage with them in a different retrospect, in a different way. Um, same as people when and, you know, work with people in yachts, you know, who are in the youth justice system already. However, early intervention, we need to get... There's people going to schools. Now, I don't agree with going into a school and just sitting in front of, say, 100 um, year seven pupils and doing a knife crime talk. Personally, I don't agree with that. Reason being is knife crime is a effect, as I've said here. It's an effect of causal issues. For someone to get to the point of reaching and picking up a knife, 
there's reasons behind it that's made them vulnerable enough to want to pick up that knife. And you will find in a, a lot, quite a lot of instances now, which is very sad, as you say, it's quite easy, like a mobile phone. Now, it, it's it's a fashion accessory. And what you'll see is you'll see loads of kids posing with the zombie blades, the zombie knives, these expensive, you know, weapons. However, what you will find is the people that actually use knives, and the knives that are used in most offences are kitchen knives, knives that are easily disposed of. If you are wanting to use a weapon, why would you buy a £50 weapon that you're going to use and have to get rid of? That's the thing. A lot of it is for status. However, these knives that these people are carrying end up getting used on them. The majority of people are actually wounded or killed with their own knife. And that, that, that's a big, big thing. You know, people think they're protecting themselves or think, you know, it's a fashion or whatever. They're actually putting themselves in more danger by carrying a blade themselves. So to go into school and sit in front of 100 pupils who I don't know how vulnerable they are. I've never met these kids. I don't know what adverse childhood experiences they've had. I don't know if there's domestic violence at home. I don't know if there's sexual abuse at home. I don't know if they've had, you know, it's a split family. I don't know if they're being bullied. I don't know that. So to go and sit in front of 100 people and basically tell them this is how bad night crime is, this is what injuries you can get. These are the type of knives that people are using. No, I don't agree with that because, yes, you may get some people. I, I can go and tell my story to all those hundred kids. The teachers could came, turn around and go, that was such an emotive, emotive, powerful speech. Well, yeah, it's bound to be because I nearly lost my life. You know, it's coming from me. It's pure emotion. It is going to be emotive. Now, some kids could turn around. Five out of that hundred could turn around and write a testimony to me going, I wouldn't pick up a knife after that. What about the other 95 kids who haven't even responded? That's the problem. People get outcomes, positive outcomes from doing these talks, but you don't get the negatives. That's the point. There could be 95 of those kids that are vulnerable, and you've just scared them that little bit more, if you get me. You've painted a real diabolical picture of just how bad it really is out there. And that one person could pick up the knife. And a lot of times, these are the young kids that are the ones that are dying on our streets. These are the ones. That so, what's the up. what's the what's the alternative then? What what is it that you are doing now that you, that that you think is offering something different, or or are you? Are you? I know you're working in this space. I know that you've set up your own social enterprise. Yeah, so we do. What I've done, Raphael, is I've realised, and I've over the last years, I've put a team together with me. So I've got an affiliate. My company now is called Nurturing Minds and Changing Times. So I have the DWP um, with me, the Department of Work and Pensions. Um, I have a specialist there who's one of my directors now. I have someone who is suicide prevention, has a charity called Ian's Chain, Alan Savile. He's an ex-policeman, um, ex-offender supervisor, ex-care home worker, and his son took his life, uh, his own life. Um, and that was due to abuse. So Alan opened this charity, Ian's Chain, and he helps a lot of people around the country. He also, when we got a fee, he worked um, alongside, he's one of my directors as well now. We also are affiliated with Tay Training. Tay Training form part of the parliamentary committee, and they provide training in the various areas. And the thing is about each and every one of us that works with me now, we're all from lived experience. Alan's got his lived experience through his trauma with his son. He's an ex-policeman, ex-offender supervisor. Then I've got the DWP who deals with vulnerable people all the time. 
um, Tammy Banks, who actually runs Take Training, and um, she's the di- director, the managing director. You need to speak to her yourself. Her life story is phenomenal. Honestly, it's phenomenal. What she's been through to come to where she is is it's it's outstanding. Um, so yeah, we we provide a whole round. I've got BCAP counselors working for me now, as well. Um, but Louisa DeMarco, who's from, have you heard of the Knife Angel? Yes, I have. I've been down and did a film about it when it was, it was, I think it was in Liverpool, actually, when it stood outside one of the cathedrals there. I went down and did a piece for the BBC One show um, and I met the mother of a young boy who'd been stabbed and, and killed. You know, she was so, you know, it was two years, less than two years since her son had died and she was traumatised. Um, but yeah, I, 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 I've seen it. That in Liverpool? Yeah. When it was at the cathedral, I'm, yeah. I'm sure it was Liverpool. It was it was up north somewhere. I'm, I'm sure it was Liverpool at the time, but I can't be sure. It might have been Derby. I'm not sure. But um, I'd met a, a mother who managed to get it because it's been quite difficult to get it to certain locations, and and it's a beast of a, well, of a statue, isn't it? It's it, it's amazing. And you're right, yeah. people who are not familiar with it, you know, they should go and look it up. But it's been made with knives that have been used. You know, for people who don't know, two hundred thousands, yeah, thousands of knives that have been used in incidents. Yeah, so one of my directors, I've took on a director now as well called Louisa, and her life story as well, phenomenal. She's been through the childcare system, through abuse in her life, through um, county lines. She's come out the other side, and she does the work. So we've all linked up around the country, and I brought them under uh, my umbrella as such of my company now. But she's got the Knife Angel coming to Essex. In, in September the 25th. We've just put a story out with John Austin of the Daily Express um, about it because we've, we've got a petition online at the moment to try and bring a national day of remembrance for all the victims of knife crime. So on the 25th of September, we're going to Essex with the Knife Crime Angel. I'll be going there, hosting with Louisa. Um, we've got a lot of kids coming as well, use, and we'll be doing workshops around it there. But yeah, we're doing a national day of remembrance um, recognised by the government, hopefully that's what we're petitioning for, um, just so that people, obviously people are hearing every single day that someone is losing their life, but then saying there's a story out today, people forget about that one person's story because it's so right as others, but if every family is allowed one day when everyone recognises that day, it gives them something back and it makes, you know, it, 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 it makes it more realistic of to everyone knowing just how huge this problem is and just the level of, you know, the amount of level of lives that have been lost. So that's what, we, what we're what we intending to do and what we want to do is we want to get into schools and start with everything. So we want to do domestic, so it's full workshops leading up to night crime, so dealing with domestic violence, adverse childhood experiences, eating disorders, child exploitation, child sexual exploitation. Everything needs to be addressed now within schools. A lot of schools are always, well, we don't have a problem with this in our school. So they're very, they're very protective of putting their hands up and going, yeah, yeah, come and do it in our school. I'm, I'm sorry, but it's time for everyone to realise this is going on. This is going on every day and is leading to a lot of our children losing their lives. So that's what we've got to do is get in, deal with and support children in all these vulnerable areas that lead up to the vulnerability of picking up a knife. If we can cut it out of the root and they don't become vulnerable, then knife crime only drops. You know, if they're not going to pick it, you're taken away. 
the uh, final effect, aren't you? If you're dealing with the root cause instead of mowing over it, you're cutting it out at the root. So we can deal with all that, which is why I've got this team around me, the best professionals in each area for a full package. I've got a programme coming out. We're just waiting on funding for it now at the moment. I've got a chef, a friend of mine who's a chef. He was trained under Marco Pierre White. So I'm taking 10, 10 young people, 16 to 24, who haven't done well in school, didn't get to college. So what their class does now, Raphael, is NEATS, which is not in employment, educational training, which they are vulnerable. They're a very, you know, targeted member of, um, well, demographic for county lines because job prospects aren't there as much because it's hard enough now getting a job for people with qualifications, unfortunately. So we're getting 10 of these. I'm going to put them on training in his kitchen as sous chefs for 12 weeks. They'll train under him and learn you know, under the head chef. Jordan Wicks, those 12 weeks, take training and my other, you know, my counsellors and everything will deliver sessions to them and build them up along that way as well. At the end of that 12 weeks, he's going to take on one or two of them in his kitchen, give them a full-time job and put the other eight into employment. So practically what we're doing is we're going to be bringing back apprenticeships in a form, you know, apprenticeships of few and far between anymore so we're just trying to create that opportunity and bring back because social economics as you know plays a big part deprivation plays a big big uh, catalyst isn't it in a lot of what we see going on so we're just trying to bring opportunities back for people but in the meantime not just give them a job but deal with the causal issues you know any issues that they had in their lives as well so support them through that well, well, good luck with that. It sounds really positive. And I suppose, you know, j- just to end this, you said a little while ago that, you know, you've embraced your second chance, which is what this podcast tries to do. It tries to look at how people have embraced or or taken or given up on their second chance, what, whatever it means. So as my final question, what does a second chance mean to you? I mean, obviously, surviving such an horrific a- a- attack can be deemed as, you know, you were given a second chance at life. And it sounds to me that although you were doing very positive things before what happened to you happened to you, you've continued to do even more positive stuff since what happened to you. But in a nutshell, to end this interview, Stuart, what does a second chance mean to you? Second chance means to me, Raphael, blast, simply blast. Reason being that we only have one life. That's what we're always told. We only have one life. We never know how short it is. Look at this young lad, you know, on, on the weekend there, he was struck by lightning, Raphael. Nine years of age, you know, playing football, nine years of age, lightning's just took him out. You never know when you're going to go. You only have one life. It is a short life. Do the best you can with your life. Do not try and take someone else's life away from them. You know, make the best of what life you have got and look after your loved ones in this life. Support each other, educate yourself, do as best as you can for yourself. Meet second chance. I just feel blessed. I really do feel blessed. Well, thank you very much, Stuart, for sharing your story. And it's good to see that you've survived. And through it, you look very healthy and very, I like the positivity in your voice and, and, and your ambition to, to, to reach those parts that others can't reach. So thank you so much for joining me today, Stuart, and good luck with the projects and programmes you're working on. Absolute pleasure for having me. Thank you. I found Stuart's story inspirational because he remains so positive about the things that can be done to prevent knife crime. There's also a lot of resources on the internet that can provide help and guidance for those who are worried about knife crime. That said, knife crime incidents have gone down 
And that trend can continue for as long as we explore the consequences by hearing stories like Stuart's. Thanks for listening to this episode and please share and follow us on social media. It would be great if you could rate and review on the site where you listen to this podcast. If you want to support or advertise on this show, please get in touch. And if you think I should get someone on the show, drop me a LinkedIn message, a direct message via Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, or any other means you have to make contact. Audio editing is by Audio Avalanche. The original music is by J-Row Productions. The cover design work is by Studio Minerva. Our guest booker is Tegan Parsons. And me, your host, Raphael Rowe. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.